Christians worship. So as they go, have a great time hearing about Jesus. If you're a guest or visitor with us and this is your first time and you want to walk your children back there, that's great. They can follow the flood of children that heads out, and uh, but the teachers are back there waiting for them to have a great time learning about Jesus. So I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 46. Genesis chapter 46 as we continue on through Genesis and through our series of looking at this book of beginnings. We're going to be looking at verse 28 through 47, verse 28 today. And I just encourage you to follow along in your copy of God's Word. If not, there's a, if you didn't bring a Bible with you, there's a great Bible apps out there that will help you. But also there's a pewback Bible right in front of you. So I encourage you to grab one of those and follow along today as we look at God's Word. Um, I turned 44 this week. Um, so I am... <laughs> Obviously, not a big deal to some people. Um, uh, for me, it was a big deal. And uh, sorry, Brad. Um, for me, it was a big deal. And the reason it was a big deal is um, by 44, uh, my father had lost an eye and a kidney. Uh, by 44, he had nearly died eight times. Um, by 44, honestly, I never thought I'd make it this far. Um, Today is my dad's birthday. Uh, this is the first time I've had an opportunity to preach on my father's birthday since his death. And I hate it. So there you go. Um, but as I read the passage this week, I was going in one direction with it. And it was going to be a very straightforward sermon. And as I got into it, I was just impacted over and over again by the scene we're going to read in just a moment. It's a scene of Jacob at, towards the end of his life coming before Pharaoh and what he says to Pharaoh about his life. And as I reflected on it, I reflected on how easy it is for me to look at the hardship in my life and the loss in my life and the, the, all the pain of life and forget the good things that God has done. Forget the grace of God and how often I, I think about how I wish things were different as opposed to understanding God's grace and seeing God's grace in the middle of my pain and my hardship. And, and I know that's difficult for some of us in this room. It's harder for others than it is for some. And, and I, I recognize that. And today I'm hoping that um, just looking at this passage and seeing the, the wrong perspective that Jacob had, but also the right perspective that we can have because of the grace of God. And, and seeing that through an example, I had the, the joy of having in my life for uh, 38 years, um, an example in my father of what it looked like to live this out. Uh, I hope that that will be an encouragement to you. So I, I just ask you to turn in the Bible to Genesis 46, and we're going to read through. And I want you to pay attention to a couple of passages that I'll point out. Here in verse 28 we read this. He had sent Judah ahead of him. That's, that's Jacob sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him to Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. So if you remember where we are in the story... Uh, Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. His father is Jacob. Jacob is the one who's been given the name Israel. He's going to be the one that the, the promise has been given to again. And they're looking for who's the next one, who's the next generation that's going to take that promise from God that they're going to be a great nation and they're going to be a blessing to all the nations. Who's going to take that promise one step further? Who's going to be the promised one to fulfill all the promises of God? And, and Jacob has always thought it's Joseph. Joseph was his favorite. Joseph was his favorite to the, fact, to the point that he, he kind of set him apart. He really set him up in a lot of ways 
for failure among his brothers, and his brothers sold him into slavery. They wanted to kill him, but they sold him into slavery. So Joseph, for a couple of decades, after living 17 years at home, now has spent a couple of decades uh, really in, in prison and as a slave, a lot of injustice being done to him. And yet he has an understanding that all of the evil that was done to him has been for God to work good. Good for him and good for others. Good for his family and good for the nation of Egypt and good for all the nations. And he's beginning to even get a clearer picture of all of that as now his father is alive and his father is being brought to him and his whole family is coming to live in Egypt. So Joseph is providing for them. Joseph has risen in the ranks. He's now second in command of all of, uh, over all of Egypt. And he's in control of all of the food. And they're in the middle of a famine. And so the brothers have come to buy food. There's reconciliation that happens over this saga that we've been reading about for the past few weeks. And now the family is coming to Goshen, to the eastern part of the Egyptian empire, the eastern part of the far eastern section of Egypt, this place closest to the promised land. So God is not just bringing them in to provide for them. He's actually setting them up to go back. And he's promised Jacob that I'm going to go with you as you go into Egypt, and I'm going to go with you as you come out. And so God has promised his presence And now they're going into Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. Just imagine, after a couple of decades, what that meeting must have been like. The emotion of the moment. If the emotion was high when he revealed himself to his brothers, imagine the emotion when he saw his father. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. This has kind of been Jacob's M.O. at this point, right? Every time something bad happens, he's like, I'm going to die, right? Hope Benjamin's, Benjamin, you want me to send Benjamin? But if something happens to him, my soul will go down into Sheol. Oh, Simeon, my soul will go down into Sheol, right? All the time. The gray hairs will go down to all the time. It's like death, 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 death to him. He's acting like his life is over. And now you almost see this picture of what, what we see in the New Testament of Mary and Joseph bringing baby Jesus into the temple. And now this old man in the temple is holding Jesus in his arms and saying, now your servant can go to his rest because he has seen his salvation. And now this idolatry that Jacob has had towards his son He now sees him face to face, and he's like, now I can die a happy man. Now I can die because you're still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that we may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So notice what he's doing here. He's setting them up to be in a position where they're not controlled by the Egyptian government. They're going to have some freedom, and they're going to have land on their own. They're not going to be in the middle of all the workings of Egypt. They're going to be in Goshen, and they're going to be seen as an abomination to the Egyptians. So people are going to leave them alone. 47, so Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? I'm sure he picked the five brothers who could verbatim say exactly what he told them to say. Right? He knows which ones those are. The others he left behind. 
So he takes the five brothers. What is your occupation? They said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Pharaoh is saying, give them my livestock to take care of. Give them the best of the land. Can we not see the obvious working and providence and grace of God and the mercy of God for this family and how he's providing? It's so obvious what God is doing. But we're going to learn in the next section that it wasn't obvious to everyone. It wasn't obvious to Jacob. Then Joseph brought in Jacob his father and stood him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? Another way of putting that is, How old are you? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. And they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojourning. I want you to pay attention to what he says there. We're going to come back to that and spend the majority of our time today on what he says there and the improper perspective on his life, but how it can turn into a proper perspective when we see the grace of God. Verse 10, And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food, according to the number of the dependents. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe. Pay attention to what's happening here. In all the land of Egypt, there's nothing. There's no food. And what you're going to read here is you're going to see what the people do in order to gain food, what they're willing to give up in their freedoms in order to live. So that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they gave all their money, then they gave all their livestock in order to get food. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. These were the most profitable people in the world now becoming slaves to Pharaoh. They're willing to sell whatever they can in order to live. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance and Pharaoh and from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day 
bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. Imagine for just a second, if you're the people traveling across the desert and the wilderness with Moses, and he's telling you this story and reminding you when he's written this down, as you're going into the promised land, hey, remember how you were once slaves in Egypt? Guess what? At one point, we were the ones who weren't slaves. It was the Egyptians themselves who were slaves. This is what God has done. He delivered us from Pharaoh. He delivered us. While he, we were allowed to be in slavery for a time, we were brought out. And imagine what it's like for the people who were your slaveholders before. They were slaves themselves. See how God can turn things around. Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you in your land for Pharaoh. And then he says in verse 24, And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own. It's actually a pretty good wage in that day. Pretty good deal for them. As seed for the field, and as food for yourselves and your household, and as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priest alone did not become Pharaoh's. Check this out in verse 27. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possession in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. While the rest of the land was languishing, they were being fruitful and multiplying. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. I want you to pay attention to two passages in in particular, beginning with verse 7 and then beginning with verse 27. As we look at this story and what it looks like to live in hardship, to live in a life that seems short and full of evil days. You know, Jacob's not wrong with his assessment of his life. His life was shorter than his father's. It was shorter than... Than his grandfather's. He wasn't wrong. I'll just tell you, my, my father's life was about 25 years shorter than his father's life. I've always assumed my life would be shorter than my father's life. But my dad did not live his life with this perspective towards the end. Look at the improper perspective of Jacob towards the end of his life. He had an improper perspective of a shortened life. Life is hard. Life is shorter. Life is full of evil. And this is what he says. The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojourning. His improper perspective is this. Pain and evil are the definers of my life. Look at what he does. Remember where he is. He's standing before Pharaoh because his son has come and is now second in command over all of Egypt, providing food and land and prosperity for his family. And he's saying, all of my days are full of evil. He's so lost perspective that he can't see the grace of God in the midst of his pain and his sorrow. Yes, his life was full of pain. Yes, his life was full of hardship. But he's missing the good things God has done. How often are our hearts blind to all of the grace and mercy of God in our lives? We moan about all the wrong in our lives, 
instead of celebrating and being thankful for what is right. I, I am so thankful that I had a great example of this in my life. In the mid-80s, we were in Malawi, Africa, serving as missionaries. And my dad got up one Saturday, as he would normally do, and go out to a village. And he was going to be preaching the next morning in the church, but he would go on Saturday evening and he would show the Jesus film. As soon as it would get dark, he would drape a, um, a sheet over the cab of our truck and over the camper of our truck, and then he would show it on a reel-to-reel. And somebody would sit there with a microphone, and they would speak what was on the screen because we didn't have speakers and we didn't have a PA. We didn't have anything like that. It was the mid-80s and we were in Africa. Okay, And so somebody would sit there and they just a little mini PA that they would crank or they would put on a generator and we would show the film. And so he, he got in the truck and he's driving to this, to this town, this little village. And on the way, he felt like he had trash in his eye. You know what that feels like, right? You're just like blinking it out, trying to get it out. And he's trying eye drops. He's trying to just pull it out. You know, all the things you would do to try to get trash out of his, out of your eye. And he went and showed the Jesus film and went to sleep that night. He woke up the next morning and he opened that eye and he couldn't see the door at the end of his cot that he was sleeping on. What he didn't know was that his retinal vein had stroked out and had completely detached. So he was no, no longer having blood flow that would allow for him to be able to see out of that eye. Um, you can imagine a little bit of panic sets in when you wake up and you can't see at all. So he went and preached. Um, and at the end of the service, got in the car and drove himself to the capital city, to the hospital. We got the phone call that he was in the hospital and that he was blind in one eye. Now, things get lost in translation, so we really weren't sure what was going on. Other missionaries went to be with him to see what was going on. and He came back home a couple of days later and... Um, about 10 days after that event, he, he was in the restroom and he, uh, he started complaining of chest pains and we thought he was having a heart attack. He said it felt like uh, Kasungu Mountain, which was just outside of our window that we could see, was sitting on his chest. And he called me in and I got him to the bed and we got to the doctor who was a Dutch doctor who lived there in town who came over and spent the night at our house. We had to break into uh, the president's suite at the uh, hospital in order to get oxygen for my father that night. He nearly died uh, more than a half dozen times that night uh, during the evening. Um, my dad was blind in one eye the rest of his life. He had that eye removed. It was a prosthetic was put in. Um, this is what I will tell you. Most people who met my dad didn't know he was blind in one eye. And that this is why. He didn't look at it, at it. After a while, as God worked through his mercy and his grace in my dad's life, my dad didn't look at it as I lost an eye. He looked at it as I have an eye. That's the difference. Jacob can't see that. Are you catching that? He, just look at how wrong he is. He's acting like he's already dead. The days of my life, 130 years. The days of my... He's dead. In his mind, he's dead. He's been talking that way for years now, right? It's been a couple of years of everything bad that happens, I'm going to die. You ever been at that point? I have two daughters. Okay? We have said for a long time that one of our daughters, the first time a boy breaks up with her, she's going to be like, yeah, good riddance. The other one will say, but I loved him. 
my life is over. Right? Some of you are one, some of you are the other, aren't you? How many times in our lives have we been like, our life is over. It's over, it's over, it's just done. Nothing to live for anymore. That's Jacob at this point. Hey man, wake up. Have you not noticed you just got your son back? Your whole family is being taken care of and provided for in a way you've never been able to do. God is taking care of you. How do you miss that? But he's missing the good things God has done because of the bad. He doesn't seem to remember even that his own sin was the the reason his life has been ruined in the first place. From the beginning, he was the one who was contentious. He was the one who was stealing. He's the one who's been sinning against other people. Has there been evil done to him? Absolutely. His father-in-law was a punk. But he was a bigger one. And he seems to have forgotten that the bed he's lying in is the bed he made. He's the one who had a favored wife over the other wife, who loved one wife and not the other. He was the one who had two favored sons over the others. He was the one who had made his life contentious, and he seems to have forgotten that. His perspective was so woe is me that he couldn't understand the woe he had put on other people. And it's so easy for us to get to that place, isn't it? In the middle of hardship, it's so easy for us to to think everything's against us and to forget the grace of God in the middle of everything that's happened. He needed to see something new. He needed a new vision, and he couldn't see it. Joseph had the ability that at the end of Genesis, we're going to hear him say, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Jacob stops at, you meant it for evil, period. He can't see at this point, God meant it for good. He's missed the fact that Joseph went for two decades to prepare the way, that God has raised him to a position of authority so that they can be taken care of, that all of the land of Egypt is now there so that they would have food. He couldn't see God's provision. He couldn't remember the day when he left home being run off because he stole the birthright and the blessing from his brother, and he tricked his father when he was walking across the desert at night, laid his head on a rock alone with a walking stick, and now he's going into Egypt with 70 family members. He couldn't see it. He couldn't see God's grace and mercy. And I think we, I know I, am so quick to think that I deserve something more. Oh, there was this guy in seminary. And I read this example in, I read this example in a commentary, and I was like, I know that guy. It's a guy in seminary, and you know how you walk up to people and you know you say, "Hey, how are you doing today? What do you expect them to say?" Fine, right? That's that's common courtesy. Don't tell me all your problems, right? I don't really want to know. I just want you to know I care enough to ask. That's it. There was one guy in seminary. Every time I asked, every time anybody asked, "Hey, how you doing?" Better than I deserve. You know those people, don't you? And you just want to smack them, don't you? This is like you just you want to go, "Oh, you spiritual." Right? This is this guy every day. Every time you'd ask him, I mean, he'd, be, he'd walk down the hall. How you doing? Better than I deserve. You'd hear him down the hall. How you doing? Better than I deserve. I'm like, just say it loudly so everybody can hear. We know. But you know what? As annoying as it was when things were bad for me, this is a guy who at least understood. If he meant what he was saying, then no matter what blessing I get is better than I deserve. Is that not true for each of us as believers in Christ? That we understand that when we come to God through Jesus Christ, we don't get what we deserve? 
We get far more than we could ever have imagined. We get forgiveness for our sins. We get adopted into His family. We're made co-heirs with Christ of a glorious eternal inheritance. We get an eternal home, citizens of an eternal kingdom. We get far more and far better than we ever deserved, but Jacob couldn't see it. His perspective was so wrong. Yes, he was right that his life was shorter. Yes, he was right that it had been full of evil. Oh, but he couldn't see the grace of God in the midst of it. He was being defined by all of the evil that had been done in his life. But our lives are meant to be a place where we learn to navigate by faith through all of the evil to see God's grace in the midst of it. We're, we're meant to grow in that way. We we overcome, as Russell Moore says, not because we're a moral majority or because we're so religious, but because we're blood-covered sinners who know that if the gospel can change us, it can change anyone. That's our hope. That's why we get up in the morning, is because if the gospel can change us, it can change anybody. The gospel can change you. The gospel can change me. But he was being defined by the pain and the evil of his life. The proper perspective is this. Life is difficult and short. And we are sojourners. So he does get that right. He says, the days of my sojourning are 130 years. He understands that he's a sojourner. In fact, the brothers even understand that they're sojourners. They go before Pharaoh and say, we're, we're only passing through this land. We're sojourners. We're not citizens. We're not getting wrapped up in all the politics of Egypt. We're sojourners here. We have a land that's promised to us. He did rightly see his life as a sojourn, not a permanent situation. When we begin to understand and get the perspective that we are just a passing through, when we begin to understand that we're literally just passing through this world, that we have a citizenship that is in heaven for us, secure, then we can begin to see the grace of God here in the midst of the pain and in the midst of the sorrow, in the midst of the evil. We're not defined by that evil and that pain. We're defined as sojourners because we're citizens of another land. We're citizens of a kingdom that's coming. But our hearts are often blind. But when our eyes are opened by God's grace to seeing our position as sojourners, and we begin to understand what our position is in this world, we can walk with a perspective through this sojourning life in order to honor God. So let me, let me make sure we go with this, what this looks like. So here's a proper and improper perspective of a sojourning life, of, of what our position is. We tend to think that our position in the world is supposed to be one of gaining. Okay, But this world is actually full of things we're supposed to be getting rid of. Actually, full of things that we're supposed to be rid of when we come to meet Jesus face to face. And this is how that happens. The improper perspective is this. This seems to be what Jacob's mindset is. is This world is all there is to live for. That's it. Think about it. He sees his son face to face, and what does he do? Now it can die. That's his mindset. That's all he needed. He doesn't need anything else. I got my son. That sounds really, really loving as a father. What it really is is just sad. 
But it really is is just sad that that's it. He's lived his whole life missing the grace and the mercy of God in his everyday life, just longing to see his son again, and he sees his son, and now I can die. I don't need anything else. I've got my son. He doesn't want to enjoy his son. He just wants to die now. Think about, think about this. Seventeen years is what Jacob had before Joseph was sold into slavery. Guess how many years he's going to get with Joseph after he gets to Egypt? Seventeen years. I wonder if we asked Jacob at the end of that seventeen years, how old are you? What his perspective would have been then. If he could have seen the grace of God. If he could have seen the goodness of God, the providence of God, the love of God and his provision for him. Or if he had been so wrapped up in his soul being taken down to Sheol that he couldn't come out enough to see God's grace and his mercy. Jacob and Joseph both rightly saw their position as sojourners, that their time in Egypt was not permanent. But the difference is that a sojourning Joseph made sure that others could be taken care of. He understood that as a sojourner, he was supposed to be a blessing to other people. He understood that he needed to set his family up on the margins of society that they could live as sojourners in the land. He didn't want them to be in the middle of the Egyptian mess. In the middle of the Egyptian mess was going to be all kinds of slavery was going to be all kinds of indebtedness to Pharaoh. They were all going to have to sell their livestock and their land and themselves back to Pharaoh. But we read in the text that the people of Israel were over in Goshen on the sidelines, on the margins, being taken care of by God. As sojourners, their position was outside of the center of everything that was going on in the world system. When we think that the world is all that there is, that this life is all that there is, that this world is all there is to live for, then what we'll do is we'll try to grab as much of it as possible and as much position as we can and as much security as we possibly can. But that's not God's design for His people. God's perspective and God's design for His people is that this world is a temporary home. And if this world is a temporary home, that allows us to look at the world a little differently. So I read this example this week, and I think it's a really good example. So imagine you're riding or driving across the Midwest in the middle of winter. Everybody there in your mind, mind's eye? Driving across the Midwest in the middle of winter. Snowstorm hits. It's a blizzard. You can't see five feet in front of the car, and it's just piling up quick. And you got to get to the next exit. And you get to the next exit, and you pull up, and you're like, whatever hotel it is, got to pull in for the night, maybe two nights. Right, so you pull in, and when you pull off the road in the middle of Kansas, and you pull up and you're like, oh, no, I would never stay in a place like this. But, but it's the only place to stay. And you walk into your room, right? And it doesn't have a flat screen TV hanging on the wall. And the bed, you can literally like see the springs coming out of the mattress. You know what I'm saying? And, the, and, and you're like, I'm going to be so cold in here because the heat's not quite working the way it needs to be. And you can almost feel the draft coming through the windows. Is everybody with me in your mind's eye? Right? But you know that in two nights, you'll be in your bed. Can you endure it? Yeah. Take you to the other extreme. I hopped a plane to go to South Asia, and when I got to the Middle East to 
to jump on my uh, connecting flight and I went to the gate, I turned in my boarding pass and as I turned in my boarding pass, the one thing you never want to hear, right? So I hand in my boarding pass. She goes, oh, I'm sorry, I can't check you into this flight. You're going to have to go over there. Um, no. Excuse me, what? Okay, so I walk over and I'm traveling with somebody else. We bought our tickets separately, but we walked over together and, and I hand, I'm waiting in line patiently and I hand my ticket to the man behind the desk and he goes, oh, you've been upgraded to business class. Why, yes, I have. That is correct. I am sure that is correct. That is awesome, right? Fantastic. And I get my boarding pass reprinted and I walk through and I see my buddy with a big smile on his face. He's like, oh, yeah. They're like, enjoy your flight in coach. And I tried to give my ticket to him half-heartedly, right? And he didn't want to, no, no, you take it. I'm like, good, <laughs> right? Now, what do you think happened the next time I got on a plane? As I walked up and I handed my boarding pass to the gate agent. Was I hoping for business class? Was I expecting business class? You see, when I knew it was only temporary, like a six-hour flight, I knew I couldn't expect it all the time. And when I knew that the hardship was temporary and only for a couple of nights, I'm willing to endure it. But how often we become people who, in the middle of enduring something, that we know because we're believers and all the promises of God are yes in Jesus, and He's taking us to a kingdom that is forever and ever, that is glorious beyond all imagination. Why can't we endure it for a time? Because we think we deserve better. This world becomes too dear to us, too precious to us. And then when we gain in this world and we think we deserve it and we think we've earned it and we think we should get it all the time, we begin to expect it. It makes it really difficult to endure. This is Jacob's perspective on life that's a dangerous perspective. The proper perspective is this world is a temporary home and if it's temporary, we can endure and we can celebrate knowing that we have promises fulfilled in Jesus. We have something better that's coming. See, what it came down to for for Jacob is he he had this improper perspective as we tend to do and that's this who's the guy who's going to be carrying forward the blessing from Jacob how is God working in this world is he working through the powerful or is he working through the weak how is God working in this world see Jacob seems to think Joseph is the one who's got to carry the blessing forward and he seems like the most likely candidate doesn't he He's the most righteous person we have met in the Bible up to this point, other than, the, than God walking in the garden. Right? The most, the most godly, righteous person in the Bible up to this point is Joseph. Surely, he's the one who's carrying the blessing forward. But that's not God's design. That's not what God's doing. God's not using the most powerful man in Egypt besides Pharaoh to carry his plan forward. He's going to use the putts named Judah. Because God's kingdom is not made up of the powerful. God's kingdom is not made up of the wisest. God's kingdom is made up of those who are delivered by grace. As 1 Corinthians tells us, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. 
God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. My dad was the weakest man I've ever known. And when I was a teenager, I made sure he knew it. And it wasn't to honor him. When I was 14, 15 years old, I would throw his weakness in his face when he would go to dialysis appointments when his kidneys failed. And he would come home weak and unable to unable to do much of anything. And I was a hurtful, hateful teenager towards my dad. I've been taught by this world that power is to be celebrated and strength is what we value. And I had the best example of weakness in front of me and I couldn't see it. It took me most of the rest of his life until I got to the point of understanding that my God is the one who's strong and my dad was never meant to be strong. He kept trying to tell me this and he kept trying to show me this, but I just couldn't see it. I mocked him to his face as a teenager because of his weakness. I blamed him for every hardship in my life because of his weakness and his inability. And now I am proud to stand in front of you to say to you that I am a product of the weakest man I have ever known in my life. Because he had a mighty God who showed himself in ways that I'll never understand because I try too hard to be strong. Why? Why are we so intent on being strong? When because of Christ, we don't have to be, nor are we designed to be. Why do we insist on demonstrating our power and our ability and our clever nature and our intelligence when we're meant to point to the God who is powerful and wise and glorious and good? Thankful that I had an example. I just pray I can live up to that example at some point in my life. My prayer is that we'll be transformed, so transformed that we'll realize that only those delivered by grace are the ones that are used by God. Not the most clever, not the most glorious, not the most powerful. See, the improper perspective on a life when we believe that the world is all there is to live for is that we deserve a blessing from the world. We deserve something out of this life. When it becomes too dear to us, when this world becomes too important to us, We deserve some blessing out of life. I can honestly tell you I do not remember ever having a political discussion with my father. Ever. Because he had the mindset that whoever the president was was who God had put in authority. Why did he believe that? Because the Bible said it. That was good enough for him. He didn't need to understand it. He just believed it. No need to talk about what I agree with, what I don't agree with, with this president. What I have is I have the Word of God to direct me. And I'll stand on it. I'm thankful for that. I can honestly tell you I don't remember my dad ever getting wrapped up in much of anything in this world. I remember my mom was really good about all the boycotts that would come through. Like, you know, the, you know, she'd hear on the radio, 
boycott Wendy's. And my dad, three months later, are we still boycotting Wendy's? Because I really want a Frosty. You know, it's like, boycott Disney. That means I can't watch ABC, right? ESPN, that's Disney, right? My dad didn't care about those things. The most wrapped up in the world I ever saw him was watching ACC basketball, the Washington Redskins, and the Atlanta Braves. And those seasons would end, and he'd move on with life. Of course, he was fans of them when they were actually decent, right? The, the, the Redskins were winning, the Braves were winning, and ACC basketball was the best. So those were good days for him. But he could just move on at the end of the season. He didn't have to be wrapped up in it. I never watched my dad get wrapped up in this world. Why? Because I think he had a vision of what was coming that I couldn't see. And I am thankful. I am thankful. My first memory of my dad was him in a hospital room. That's my first visual memory of my father. And my last visual memory of my father is him sitting up in his hospice bed after being asleep for three days. Blind completely because now both retinal veins had detached. Looking off into the distance to something I could never see. And when I asked him, are you ready to get out of here? He said, yeah. And I said, isn't it going to be great? And he said, oh, yeah. And that vision carried him in his weakness. Oh, that we would have that sort of vision. That God is strong and we are not. When we have that sort of vision, we begin to have this proper perspective that we are blessed to be a blessing. When my dad lost his kidney, he began to talk other people through what it was like to go through dialysis and kidney transplants. When my dad lost an eye, he would talk other people through eye injuries and eye surgeries that they would have to have. When my mom got cancer, she began to talk through. She would drive 12 hours to sit with a friend who was going through her treatment that she went through the year before, even in the middle of her treatments, so that she could be a blessing to others. And here we have Jacob. Something, he finally gets something right. That he's, he's got some semblance of faith in him because look at what he does with Pharaoh. When Joseph brought in Jacob his father and stood him before Pharaoh, Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And at the end of the discussion with Pharaoh, what does he do? He blessed Pharaoh again. This is unheard of. The mightier man, the man of position and authority is supposed to bless the lower man. But here's Jacob understanding, at least in some small way, the commission that had been given to his grandfather was the commission that he is now carrying. That you are blessed to be a blessing. And he's a man who couldn't see how he had been blessed. But he was still going to be a blessing to others. I need you to see today. I need you to hear me today. In the middle of your weakness, in the middle of your suffering, in the middle of all the evil that's been done to you, in the middle of all the struggle of your life, in the middle of all the loss and the pain of your life, every blessing that you have is meant to be used as a blessing for someone else. It's meant to be a blessing to to the nations, to the ends of the earth, to people that they would know the goodness of God. They don't need to know how hard your life is. Their life is hard too. They need to know how good your God is. I tell youth every time we go on a trip in the middle of the summer, I went to Toronto with our youth. And we went, I've been to Mexico with youth. I've been to all over the world with youth. And here's what I tell them in the middle of the summer. At no point during this trip are you to tell me that you are hot. Because I will be hot too. You aren't helping. We may think that commiserating with other people in our misery helps them. But what they need is a vision of a good God. 
We can sit there and be quiet with God. But we don't have to commiserate in people's misery. We can actually come alongside of them, put our arms around them, and let them know that we're there because we're ambassadors of a God who is there. And I want to encourage you. You can be a blessing to others no matter how small the blessings may be in your life. Because God's people aren't meant to be powerful. We tend to think that we're most protected when we're in the center of the world systems, that we can find authority and we can find power and we can get place and we can get position and we have people looking at us and we can make more influential moves in the world if we just have that place of power. But God's design has never been that way. God has never, ever in the New Testament church put His people in that position because we're most vulnerable in those positions. We're most vulnerable to power hunger. We're most we're most vulnerable to our self-sufficiency and self-righteousness in those positions. No, God's people are most effective at the margins. And look at what God did with His people here. Even though Joseph was going to be in authority and power, the people who would change the world, the people that would go back to the promised land, were on the margins. And see God prospering them on the margins? While the rest of Egypt is selling themselves for food, they're prospering. Oh, my fear is that we would so want prosperity and so want protection that we would seek it somewhere else other than our mighty God. I just ask you, is He good? Is He powerful? Is Is He mighty? Is He more powerful and more mighty? than the systems of this world, than the party you follow, than anything else you're putting your hope in, I am immensely grateful for a father who lived his life not perfectly, but as one who understood that God would be made great and glorious in his weakness not in his strength. That even that he would have more influence in the world by being an outlier than he would be an insider. That he'd be able to speak with a prophetic voice into people's lives from the margins far better than he ever could from the inside. That his weakness would put God's glory and power on display not his own strength. I'm thankful for that example. And I know many of you in this room, that may not be the case. You may not have had those examples, but I want you to hear me on this. My dad was a great dad. But he would have failed as a father if he had never pointed me to the one who was greater. And I'm so thankful he pointed me to Jesus. Because Jesus is a far greater example than my father could have ever been. His life was far shorter than Jacob's. Jacob lived 147 years, Jesus just over 30. Jesus' life was half my father's. And Jesus lived on the margins. A life full of suffering and pain, betrayal, abandonment, sickness, death of family and friends. And yet in him, unlike Jacob, there's no bitterness. There's only thankfulness through all of it. Even in the death of his 
friend, as he's weeping, he's thanking the Lord for what he's going to do. And his perfect ability to see with perspective allows him to do that. He took on himself, after living the life of perfect obedience that you and I could never live, he took upon himself a position of condemnation and exile. He became the true sojourner in exile because they took him out of the city, the city that he had built outside the temple that was there to worship him. They took him outside the city gate and they put him on a cross, on a hill, among thieves. They reckoned him to be a criminal so that he became an abomination to the Gentiles and to the Jews alike so that you and I, who are sojourners on this earth, now by his mercy and his grace can become citizens of an eternal kingdom. That's something my dad could never do for me. He could simply point me to Jesus. And I'm thankful he did. So here I am today with all of my weaknesses, with all of my inabilities, with all of my failures, many of them my father's, to tell you, look to Jesus. The true sojourner in exile who took all of your sin upon him so that you could be citizens of his kingdom, members of his family. Call on him today. Be okay with being weak. You have no idea what kind of impact you'll have on a 14-year-old boy when you continue being weak even when you're being mocked. I'm thankful that I came to a place where my dad and I became best friends. Where I could celebrate his weakness. Where I could stand in front of you and tell you I've never met a weaker man and I've never had one that I've been so proud of. But my Jesus is greater and I want you to know Him. So call on Him today. Admit your weakness. See Him to be strong. Father, I pray that each of us now would admit our weakness to You to know that Jesus has paid it all for us and to come to you in faith. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand. We're going to sing together. Jesus paid it all.